Whenever I visit France, I always see lots of top bottles for sale, but when I get back home, those same bottles can be much harder to find, if not impossible. That's why I use IdealWine.com. At IdealWine.com, I can buy wines directly from France for delivery directly to my home. They have new auctions every week, and the fixed price selection is equally awesome. Clos Rouchard, Chateau Reyes, and Ulysse Colon, as well as many more greats from all over France, are regularly available on the website. Best of all, it is simple and hassle-free to buy them. Ideal Wine handles all the customs and logistics hurdles for you and for me. Wines are ordered with a couple of clicks, and then they arrive. It is simple. Check out IdealWine.com for more information. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com to find what you'd like to be drinking. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. Brotherhood Winery in the Hudson Valley has been in continuous operation since 1839 and is one of the few American wineries to persevere through prohibition. They even observed that the clergy population around the winery grew considerably during prohibition. Hmm, I wonder why. A couple decades later, the first bonded winery in the U.S. was founded in 1860. Pleasant Valley Wine Company from New York City and they sold Sacramento wine during Prohibition to stay in business. And today, New York is one of the top states in the U.S. for grape volume production, most of which is Concord. About 65% of grape production goes to grape juice, and about 33% goes to wine. And of all the wine, about 10 to 15% is vinifera production. And vinifera production has been a hot topic in the state for quite some time. Many producers used to think that vinifera could not grow in such a cold climate. In the 50s, 60s, and 70s, Constantine Frank was a major voice in the industry who called for more vinifera plantings. He had worked with vinifera vines in some of the coldest climates in today's Ukraine. And his vinifera activism in the U.S. impacted the entire East Coast. In 1976, the Farm Winery Act made it much easier to set up a winery. And after this act, we see a great increase in the number of wineries. In 1976, we had 19 wineries in New York. Today, we have over 200. Recently in 2011, new laws made it even easier to open up a winery by not requiring estate vineyards and estate-owned equipment. Now people can buy and sell grapes and press them at custom crush facilities and essentially function as negociants. This relieves a lot of the financial burden of starting up a brand new winery, and so I imagine we'll see a lot more in the next couple of decades. If we focus on the Long Island wine-growing area, we see two distinct terroirs laid out by glaciers hundreds of thousands of years ago. The South Fork is full of one-million-year-old glacial deposits, and the soils are heavy. The North Fork has newer glacial deposits. These are just 130,000 years old. (laughs) And here, the soils bear similarities to Bordeaux. They freely drain. 
In the 1980s, a few pioneer producers had just planted their estate vines, and many were curious to get some feedback from similar wine regions around the world. In 1986, they invited some geologists and soil scientists and climate experts to speak at a cool climate symposium. Many of the early planters walked away from the symposium with a new sense of regional confidence and a clearer direction of the future. It's never easy to write the story of your wine region when the weather changes so much from year to year. And the weather on Long Island does just that. It varies so much from year to year. There haven't been many similar vintages in the past few decades. Many producers will hedge their bets with several different varieties. And similar to many other emerging wine regions, there is much variety experimentation as producers search for the particular voice of their soil. We'll see lots of unique things from most producers on Long Island because of these two reasons, variable weather and experimentation. Perhaps one block originally went in for blending in the Bordeaux-style blend, but in a particularly good year, it was great on its own, and you might see a special single varietal bottling from what is normally a blending block. But in other years, the same block might fare much differently, and so you see lots of blending. We're also seeing lots of different farming techniques on Long Island. Some people work sustainably, others organically, and there are also some interesting wines from biodynamic wineries. I've also heard a lot of chatter about yeast in recent years, as winemakers search for and experiment with their local microbiology. And if you haven't felt it yet, the Manhattan market is much more interested in New York wine than it once was. You'll see wines from all over New York on many of the city's most important wine lists. And what does all this mean? It's not quite been a century since Prohibition brought a thriving wine industry in the U.S. to its knees. And in the past 30 years, we've seen domestic wine region after domestic wine region rise up and help define the future of American wine. New York wine, Hudson, Erie, Finger Lakes, and Long Island, they're an integral part of the story of American wine, even before Prohibition. And today, New York is in the middle of writing its next chapter. It's not enough to make great wine. You also have to reach the consumer that appreciates that wine. And that's where Offset is an incredible asset. Offset is an independent brand design and commerce technology company that connects with wineries on a human level to help them connect with consumers on a human level. Offset is based in wine country and staffed by creative strategists and technologists who are superb at helping create and evolve wine brands through visual identity and package design, developing the look, feel, and tone of your web content, as well as building beautiful and effective websites powered by their proprietary e-commerce platform, Offset Commerce. That's why leaders like Frog Sleep, Grace Family Vineyards, and Rain Winery already rely on Offset. Reach out to the brilliant team at Offset at offsetpartners.com. That's O-F-F-S-E-T partners with an s.com offset is focused on the wine industry and can embrace the nuanced needs of your wine brand christopher tracy of channing daughters on the show hello sir how are you i am well how are you nice to have you here it's a pleasure to be here. So you grew up in the Bay Area. 
I did grow up in the Bay Area. What was that like? Pretty wonderful. I feel very lucky. I mean, you know, childhood is both uh, difficult and wonderful all at the same time. But I felt it was great. We lived in a beautiful place. I was exposed to lots. Got to travel quite a bit as a kid. And my folks exposed me to great wine and food. And yeah, it was a really wonderful childhood. Your dad was into wine. My dad was definitely into wine. My mom and dad were definitely into food and wine. They loved to travel. My mom was a great cook. My dad collected wine. He drank a lot of wine and even had a vineyard in St. Helena. We had his vineyard in St. Helena for for a while. Well, that's pretty cool. It was. It was great. We um, bought the Heinemann Mountain Vineyard from the Heinemann family. It was the vineyard underneath the Stony Hill property, if you've ever been up there, in the Bale Grist Mill. It's a state park now. And so it was um, Pinot Noir and Riesling. And Walter Shug made the wines there. So they were made at Joseph Phelps for a long, long time. And among some of the first vineyard-designated wines out there, Heinemann Mountain Pinot Noir, and they had the Heinemann Mountain Johannesburg Riesling. And it was cool. And then when um, Shug left Phelps and started Shug Cellars, he kept making the wines from the Heinemann Mountain Vineyard. So they were Heinemann Mountain Pinots through the 80s. And I think we sold, I think my folks sold the vineyard in 91 or 92. I think it was the Westovers that bought it. I, I could be mistaken. And um, I think they grubbed it up and planted Cabernet because Napa Cabernet. That's where the dollar right. is. Yeah. Um, but it was great. And, you know, it was great going up there. And I made wine as a kid. And it was fun going up and chopping heads off rattlesnakes and eating grapes and climbing in the gondolas and getting to know people. And so, yeah, I have a, a special place in my heart for that area. But you didn't immediately go into wine. No, not at all. It was a circuitous route for me to end up back in wine. I never really thought I would, um, I couldn't be happier, but I never really thought I would end up in wine. I mean, I went to college for performing arts and philosophy. I came east for boarding. I went to high school in San Francisco for part of it and then came east to boarding school for a couple of years. Then went back west for college and graduated with a degree in performing arts and philosophy and then came back to New York for graduate theater school. And you were in the theater world for a bit. So, yeah, I pursued a a career education and a career in the theater. So I went to the Circle in the Square professional workshop. They have a, you know, professional Broadway theater training program there. It's where I met my partner and my wife, Allison, as well, back in 1992. We've been together ever since then. And I was there for a year, and then I left and worked with Ann Bogart and the Saratoga International Theater Institute and Ann and Suzuki's company. And we did that for a while, and then Allison and I... I guess it was about 95 or 90, 95 or so, founded the Momentary Theater, which was a not-for-profit, small movement-based avant-garde theater troupe that we had. And we traveled around the country and around the world making theater. What um, was that like? It was immensely rewarding. Uh, it was, it's, you know, I mean, so, it was great. It was, it opened up so many doors and learned so many things and got to travel and got to make things and create things that we'd love to do. It was a real, it was a real pleasure to do. It just didn't pay the bills very well. And living in New York, it was hard to, you know, make a living. And it was certainly hard to eat and drink well, which uh, both of us had been exposed to and accustomed to. So that was something we had to, we had to figure out, but it was wonderful. And especially some of the trips that, you know, we took overseas, they were the type, and we were young. So, you know, it's the type of thing, oh, we're going here for three weeks and we'd end up staying for three or four months and getting into all sorts of other experiences. And that was pretty, pretty wonderful. And, you know, it also opened up lots of door. I mean, we had, we did a lot of original work and came across some subjects and some people that really definitely changed our lives. And one of the things that, that we, um, 
worked on was a project called Climbing Black Mountain. It was about Black Mountain College. I don't know if you know anything about Black Mountain I College. I don't at all. So Black Mountain College, I think, is one of the more important places in, in this country. It was a, a college in North Carolina in, in Black Mountain right outside of Asheville um, in the 30s, 40s, and 50s. And pretty much so much of culture and education is born out of that place. It was the first dissemination of the Bauhaus and those ideas. Uh, Joseph Albers and Annie Albers taught there. Gropius had come over. So many people from, you know, education through literary arts, performing arts, visual arts, dance. I mean, people from, you know, Rauschenberg to Merce Cunningham to Paul Taylor were students and teachers to people like Elliot Merrick and novels to the whole original sort of, I mean, Charles Olson and and those guys came out of that place and then directly into the beat movement and Robert Creeley and those guys were there much, much, much later and the Jenner Johns and just so, so, so many people, Merv Lane. And, and so that we traveled around the country interviewing all the surviving members that we could, that we could find people, the people that were students or teachers and, and, you know, basically trying to climb that cultural, you know, history of, of this country. And that opened up a lot of doors and, and a lot of opportunities and changed our, our world in a big way. And you ended up working in restaurants in New York for a bit. I did. Well, you know, I mean, when I first moved to New York in uh, 1992, before anything else, I got a job waiting tables because it was, you know, it was a way to pay the bills. And, and yeah, I mean, one of the, th- what happened was when we were working in the theater, we wanted to eat and, and drink much better. And so I can't remember how exactly we got introduced, but there was a guy named Jim Coyle back in the day that ran a company called Performance Review and then Hospitality Services, Inc. And they were sort of undercover eater gigs. And so you get paid to go eat at, you know, one, two, three, four-star restaurants and do the whole experience. You know, undercover, you would pay your way and then they'd reimburse you. And it was really crazy and objective. There was no subjective reviewing. It wasn't I like this or it was, you know, the waiter approached the table at 8.02. We were offered water at 8.04. There was pilling on, you know, this and there was a a hair underneath the candle. And, and then this is what we ordered. And you'd go check the bathroom and you'd check the level of the garbage cans and you'd order, you know, and it was a lot of work, but it was great. And it allowed us to go out and experience a lot of great New York city restaurants and allowed us to eat and drink very well. But it became laborsome too, because they had to be very objective and they were long and a bad experience would be a 15, 20, 25 page review that took hours and hours to write. So it was like, oh, this is just getting, but so yeah, we did that for a long time and it was just got a little much. And I thought, oh, maybe I should go get some other training. Maybe I could write and, you know, turn this into something more lucrative and then decided to go back to, decided to go to the French Culinary Institute. That's what it was at the time and, and study cooking, thinking that it might help with writing in some way. And where did that take you, the, the cooking? I started cooking. And at the same time, I thought it'd be fun to do some more wine studies as well. So I signed up for things like the Soulmate Society of America's wine class back in the day. And then eventually started going through the WSET courses as well. But went to the French Culinary Institute and did pretty well and loved it. And I, again, here I am making something. You know, it's I was creating something and making something and making myself feel good doing and making other people feel good when you cook something delicious. And so I liked it. And so I, I went, I did a stage at Union Square Cafe because I thought Danny Meyer's Union Square Hospitality Group was, you know, sort of unparalleled and wanted to see what that place was like. And um, did a pastry stage because um, I liked the hours of pastry a little bit better. I didn't really want to be 
<laughs> yeah, the lure of the of working service is it was yeah, the, it was clear that was never really going to work out for me. So, so pastry was sort of good. I could go in in the mornings early and do things and be there and be there for the beginning of service and then get out. So, so did a stage there and had a relationship then with uh, Stacy Pierce, who was the pastry chef at that time. And then March was closing for their renovation at that point when Wayne Nish and Wayne Nish, Joe March. Scalise. Um, had that place and Mike Anthony was the chef there then. And then so they hired Stacy. That was the first time they had a hired a pastry chef. They had all done it sort of together. And Stacy asked if I wanted to come along and sort of be a part of that reopening and her pastry, blah, 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 blah. And so I did that for a while and that was cool. And met Mike, who became, you know, a, a great friend. And then went to work for a big catering company called Robin's Wolf Eventures, which is a you know, high-end catering company that does a lot of work here in the city um, and then also out on the East End. So we were out out on the East End a lot. And, you know, I was always the executive sous chef of that and worked in that for a couple of years. And it was great experience. Certainly taught you how to solve all sorts of problems and cook at a high-end level in the middle of a field. And so it was it was pretty um, crazy but good. And I learned a lot. And, and they were good experiences. And your first interaction with Channing Daughters was as a customer. Yeah, absolutely. My wife, Allison Dubin, is born and raised uh, in Manhattan. One of the most, one of the few, and and it's it seems, and and her family had been going out to the East End to Hampton Bays for you know forty plus years, um, and that also worked too. Then when I was working with Robin's Wolf, because we could be in the city, I could go out there. I had a place to stay. I could. It just all it all worked, and and I have taken on the passion of wine from my parents as well. And had been collecting wine, you know, at that point for a while and drinking wine from all over the world and on mailing lists and buying wine and, you know, putting it away and all that sort of thing. And was like, well, there's a wine region. And, you know, this is in the you know mid and late nineties. And I was like, well, there's a wine region in our backyard. It's literally not even two hours away. Why don't we, why haven't we been to every single producer? I mean, it seems some, somewhat silly that, you wouldn't at least go check it out. And so we made up a, a point of that and we went to all the various producers. And one day we walked into Channing Daughters and that's when we met Larry Perrine. And, and yeah, the rest is history, sort of. What was that history? I mean, how did things get going? So we, we went in that day and spent a bunch of time and had a great time and met this man, Larry Perrine, who's a real pioneer out there. One of, one of America's great viticulturalists, a real unsung hero in a lot of ways. And instrumental in the history of the East End, was the first soil scientist hired by Cornell to start the research lab out there, work with the MUDs early on, has been everything from, you know, a winery owner to, you know, a vineyard manager and viticulturalist and vineyard consultant to a winemaker and everything in between. And so we got along smashingly that afternoon, sort of, you know, struck up an acquaintance and then started going back a little bit, having a few more things, a few more conversations, a few more interactions joined the wine club at that time of which there were very we were the 16th member so it was something and we were in a lot of wine clubs at that point too especially out in California and they had a program that they were doing called Team Merlot and so there was about a dozen of us that would go out there once a month for a fairly structured afternoon or morning or afternoon evening of educational work 
So it was like, oh, you guys are really interested in this? Great. We're going to take a year and, you know, come out here once a month and we're going to prune and then we're going to pull brush and we're going to bottle wine one day and we're going to, you know, harvest grapes in the fall. And we're going to, and we, that's pretty so, cool. It, yeah, it was amazing. I mean, we had a couple years of that. We did Team Merlot. We also did a Team Chardonnay once we were there. And then we grew and it just, it just went by the wayside, but it was great. And, and the people that we met, those, you know, original dozen people, those first couple of years all became close friends. And then we became close friends with Larry and one thing led to another and dinners and drinking wine and well why aren't you making a you know wild yeast barrel fermented chardonnay why isn't anybody doing that out here they've been done before but there's not one on the market and it makes all the sense in the world the fruit they know everything about why is why is nobody making a white blend there's sauvignon blanc and chardonnay and pinot grigio and why if we drink all these wines like this why it makes so much sense why is anybody doing that and larry just said well they had a winemaker that time too it was sick and sort of on his way out. And when I pose those questions, Larry, and that was in, so that was 99 and 2000. We sort of developed the relationship and went through those teams and original and sort of got closer. And then in 01, he said, you want to make a few barrels of that? And I said, yeah, absolutely. And so I uh, made four barrels of L'Enfant Sauvage in 2001. And that was my first wine out there. We were still living in the city at that time. And I was still working as a chef at Robbins Wolf. And Allison actually was producing media for um, New York Stock Exchange and NASDAQ, sort of taking her directing and producing skills from the theater and parlaying them into that. And so that's how the first wine that I made there came about. And what was that wine? It was L'Enfant Sauvage. So it was a, you know, we just pressed the grapes and filled the barrels and walked away. And it was that sort of ambient sort of, you know, no top. And we still make that wine today. Um, and that's what we do. We press the grapes, you know, whole hand harvest, whole cluster press the grapes, put them in 100% new oak and walk away now for 18 to 24 months. We don't open the barrels. We don't stir them. We don't top them. We come back and, and, and we bottle. Sometimes we filter. Sometimes we don't. It depends. And so that was, that was the first wine. And then September 11th happened. Um, and that was a big game changer for everybody. And Robin's Wolf Kitchen's over on the West Side Highway. So I watched that second plane hit and we spent all day, you know, cleaning people up and, and that was a nightmare. And we wanted out pretty quickly after September 11th, even though we love the city dearly. And, you know, we're still connected and my in-laws live here and then my brother and sister-in-law were here all the time. And, but we definitely were ready to, to take, to make that move. And Larry had a buddy out there that was opening a new restaurant and was looking for a chef and said, well, why don't you make, why don't you do this? All along, I think he knew it wasn't going to work. But it was a way to get us out there, and it, that was hugely appreciated. So we took the plunge. I went out there, met that guy, uh, Robert Durkin. He has a place called Roberts, and we were gonna uh, we were gonna open a place and moved out there into Allison's folks' place to figure we could save some money for a little while, and and then be able to buy a place after after some time. And went and started planning this project, and one thing led to another, and indeed it did fall through. And Larry was waiting in the wings there going, all right, great. You guys want to come to work for me? And we were like, fantastic, let's do it. And so um, we moved out there in March of 2002 and went to work at Channing Daughters. I went to work in the cellar and Allison went to work with Larry upstairs in the office. And that was that. Seems like today you make a fair amount of wines. I mean, there's a number of different labels. We do. I mean, the groundwork was, was laid in many senses, especially sort of the fresh wine concept and things like unoaked, uh, non-malolactic stainless steel fermented Chardonnay, which, you know, was there before I came. It was actually one of the reasons I was interested, had a bottle of the 98 
scuttle hole Chardonnay at Les Pinas way back in the day and was like, are you kidding me? Like, who's doing this in America? And why don't we know about it? And this is delicious, you know? It's like a Chablis in a cool year and a Macon in a warm year and in, in its own unique Long Island, new world, old world sort of, of way. But it was like, why don't we? And so... um you know, much and when we were out there too, when we met, when we were there in '99 as part of that team Merlot project, we planted that Sylvanus vineyard, which was the first Tokai that went in. So I remember, you know, we dug the holes in the ground with the the crew and and put the Tokai in the ground. So you know, the groundwork, much of the ground, I mean, a lot is still we've built on that, and there's more varieties and you know all sorts of things. Much of that groundwork was laid when we came on, and you know. Walter Chan, the Channing family are our partners, and you know that's Channing daughter came into existence in the mid '90s because Walter, a mutual friend of of the Channings of Walter and Molly Channing, introduced Larry to them because they needed a consultant to come in and give the vineyard some TLC. Um, the Sculpture Garden Vineyard had been planted in '82, so it's one of the older vineyards out on the South Fork, and that's how they met. They came on. Walter had planted these vines and and then more had been planted and loved wine, loved grapes, but, you know, sold them to various people. And they met each other. They liked each other. Walter was a venture capitalist for small medical startups. And Larry looked at the place and looked at Walter and said, this is what we can do. And Walter said, great, let's write up a tight little business plan. Let's build this building and launch Channing Daughters. So that's what happened. 95, That the they built the building. 97, the first wines were released. Um, and then we came on and met those guys in 99 and then 2001, 2002. So when I came, we were making about four or five wines and about four or 5,000 cases. And yeah, now we make three dozen plus wines. Um, I mean, this year we're going to bottle up close to 16,000 cases of wine. So uh, the, uh, the decade of growth was was fast and furious and quantum. Um, but that's it's been exciting. How should I sum up that production if I were to think of... What's Channing Daughters about? I mean, what would you tell me? Deliciousness. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, honestly, the fir- first and foremost, our goals are in tandem, our deliciousness and reflection of place. That's what, what we want to do is make delicious wines that people want to drink that reflect where and who they come from. And then within that context, we're really lucky because we at Channing Daughters and Long Island in general has a wealth of diversity. So I have raw materials that, you know, not a lot of other people get to work with. And our region is able to ripen those things in an organoleptic and analytical way that is conducive to producing a myriad of wine styles, which I think is really one of Long Island's greatest strength is it its potential for diversity. Tell me a little bit more about that. What is the Long Island terroir? It sounds like there's a lot of it. There is. I mean, it's well. There's ter- there's terroir everywhere. You know, every, every that's what it is. It's where you are and how that reflects it in whatever you're doing, whether that's growing tomatoes or growing grapes or or whatever you may be growing and making. But you know, first and foremost, it's a it's a moderate maritime region. Not as cool as people think. I mean, it can be cool, but it's you know, you go look at growing degree day records. People are amazed at where you know at, at which is why we can actually ripen, especially in warmer, dry years, things like Cabernet Sauvignon. Um, But it's definitely a moderate maritime region with all the wonderful and all the pejorative things that come along with that. You know, the soils are loam soils, three basic series of loam, 
Haven and Riverhead series loams on the North Fork and then Bridgehampton loam on the South Fork. So mixtures of sand, silt and clay, fairly gravelly subsoils, lots of like red iron and blue clay bands, depending on where you are. Amazing drainage potential, you know, it can rain two or three inches and half an hour later you can come and the vineyard's dry, which is mind boggling to me because it's not like that in Napa, you know, when it rains just a little bit and there's Granted, you go down the road and there could be a little lake or, you know, bog or something like that. But the way the soil drains water is, is amazing to me. And, you know, those soils were made by the same glacier that made the Finger Lakes. So, it's a, you know, it's a, we live up on, you know, about eight minutes from the winery. And we live actually in some hills, which is sort of funny coming from California to say. But there are a little bit of hills up there that was the last push of that glacier 10,000 years ago coming out there. So, and, you know, it's, you know, water is everything. Water is the be-all and end-all of Everything in every wine region, whether it's cool and wet or warm and dry, if you have it, you know, you can have too much of it and it can be a problem in terms of rot and disease. If you don't have it, you're fighting for it. You can uh, all sorts of things. But one thing we have is lots of water. And again, with all the good things that brings in terms of moderation from temperatures, from the ocean and the bays and the sound to balance in analytics of wine in terms of lower alcohols, uh, moderate alcohols, ripe uh, crips, natural juicy acidities, those sort of things that we can, you know, make an effort to grow ripe, healthy grapes and not have to worry about adjustments. Um, and that's, that's a real joy. And yeah, with, there are so many potentials with, especially within white, pink, skin fermented white, or what people like to call orange wines now, from sparkling through fresh and unoaked, through aromatic and earthy, through rich and bold and barrel fermented, to textured and skin fermented, to sweet. That's pretty amazing. And, and then if you start talking about the diversity of grapes that we work with from things that are classic like Chardonnay and Sauvignon Blanc and Pinot Grigio that you can do those things with, to things like Ribola Gialla or Muscat or Tokai or, you know, so... I, I find the region, to, you know, and I'm a born and raised, you know, seventh generation Californian and, and love it out there. And But it's a very exciting place to make wines. And you, it's, it's not for the weak of heart or faint of heart. You know, I mean, we can get a, we get hurricanes for crying out loud. I mean, it's just insane to me. But it, the, the challenges I look at are as wonderfully creative. And there's there's no reason we can't make world class wines year in and year out on the east end of Long Island, no matter what's thrown our way, as long as you are willing to be creative and turn on a dime, too. So how many different grape varieties do you grow? Over two dozen. Yeah, over a dozen whites and, and a dozen reds. And it seems like sometimes you do field blends and sometimes you do single variety. And how do you make that decision? So, yeah, that's true. We love, I love blending. We love blending. I think blending always makes more complete, complex, and delicious wines. And so I think we like to celebrate all, you know, the entire continuum of what it means to be blended, whether that's in a varietal wine, like Scuttlehole Chardonnay, whether that's in a varietal vineyard-designated wine, even more specific, you know, that may just be a blend of different blocks or different barrels or different tanks to actually blending different grapes from different vineyards made in different vessels and then blended together two field blends when with 
we're stuck with what we got, what we planted. And we're trying to celebrate that particular time and place where there's things that are perfectly ripe, things that are underripe and things that are overripe and that whole spectrum that that brings. And, and so really it's about the style of the wine. And I think what we're trying what we're trying to achieve within, within the context of that style, within the context of the vintage that then dictates how we're going to blend, if we're going to blend, why we're going to blend. So it changes every year. It does. And something else that you do is quite a lot. Well, save for the field blends. Okay. So because there's, there's some... nothing you can do. I mean, they are what they are. Though we do go in, you will see, the, because that's what it is. It's, it is what it is. And, you know, that's another interesting thing, too, because we give a lot of information on, on the bottles about what it is and what the percentages are. And, and there's sort of three ways that we can figure that out as well. The most exact being, for instance, in something like Vino Bianco, where I did take Tokai, Pinot Grigio, Sauvignon, and Chardonnay and made them in a punch-in and a you know, a 550 tank and three stainless steel barrels. And I have 150 gallons of this and, you know, 30 gallons of that and 400 gallons of this. And I can give you a pretty exact percentage, most exact, less exact. I have a weight. Oh, I had a ton of these grapes and 600 pounds of this and 450 pounds of this. But as you know, every grape yields a different gallonage per ton in a different vintage, you know, all, all sorts of things. So still fairly accurate, but less accurate than the gallonage. And then thirdly, by a vineyard percentage. When something like Sylvanus is done by vineyard percentage because it's not, everything goes in and gets harvested at once. So well, how much? Well, there was 40% of the vineyard was planted to this and 30% was planted to that. So that's sort of the, from the most to the least precise ways we figure out. Because I can imagine the yield, even though there's 40% vines of this, the yield differing between vines that carry a lot of fruit and those that don't. Absolutely. You know, in a, in terms of actual fruit in a yep, wine. Absolutely. So it seems like you make a big commitment, not just to some field blends, but also to certain, what I might think of as categories, like rosé and orange wines. And, yep. Uh, there are a number of different bottlings in those categories. And why that decision and what's the difference between them? Yes, we do. Look, we make about 16,000 cases a year, right? Lower, let's say. We've been, you know, no, normally we would have said we'd make about 12 or 13, but in the last couple of years, things have crept up to you know, 14, this year we harvested 260 tons, which is like a good 40 plus more tons than we've ever done. So 40 tons is actually a lot of fruit. Yeah. It's a lot of, it's, it's a lot. Um, logistic, our biggest challenge this vintage was just logistics. Like, where are we going to put this stuff? Um, and within that, so let's, let's just take 12,000 as a number. That's easy. Let's say probably mm, 4,000 of that is rosé. Probably 5,000 of that is white. And then, you know, five or 6,000 is white. And then one or 2,000 cases are red. And probably 1,000 cases of skin fermented whites. And then now we have Veravino Vermouth, which is another 1,000 thousand cases. But it breaks down that way. So, I mean, those, the, yeah, they're, they're, it's a big commitment. And the white category, again, is we have those fresh, unoaked wines and then we have more aromatic you know expressions and then richer bold barrel fermented wines and then yes we have the skin fermented category which we have, is now an orange wine category but it wasn't always i mean when we first started making those skin fermented whites our first vintage for meditation and envelope was 2004 there was no orange wine category back you probably helped define that orange wine category um, with, with some of your dinners and things which is great because a lot of people understand it a lot more it makes it easy for people to talk about but so Meditation and Envelope were the first two skin-fermented whites that we made. And it was, again, looking back and 
we were first of all we're huge fans of Northeast Italy and drink a lot of those wines and had been there a couple times, so we knew about them. We're drinking wines from Radicon and Damajan and Grovner and Vodopovich and Costellata and all you know Conte. I'm like, why aren't we doing this? We could do this. We have these varieties. It's not so different here, you know. Why wouldn't we do this? Let's do it. So we did it, and it worked out really well. And then in '08 we introduced Romato which was the peanut, the skin fermented Pinot Grigio because we have enough of it. I could do other things with it and it was something that would be great and we could also char, it was sort of like an, it sort, it sort of is like an entry level skin fermented wine, which is great because it introduces people to the category before they want to go into even more texture or complexity or wood or whatever it may be. And then Rebola um, after that because it was planted much later. And then we started to see skin fermentation creep into a series of other wines as a blending technique too. So in things like Sylvanas and Mosaico and Clones and Cuvée Tropical, there might be a barrel or a small tank that was skin fermented that's blended into what would otherwise be a fairly, you know, modern white wine to increase complexity, texture, aroma, flavor, all those sorts of things. So that's something that we've been hugely fascinated with. You know, we make all these wines because we believe there's a time and a place for each one of them, a different mood and food and season and person to pair it with. And those skin fermented white orange wines provide huge opportunities at the table that other wines don't. We like to drink them. We like to pair them. So and we could do it. So that's how that came to be the skin fermented whites and in many senses. And the rosé project, too, has been huge for us. I mean, it makes so much sense rosé on the East End for a myriad of reasons from our climate. Again, year in and year out, especially if you're willing to turn in difficult vintages and make rosé out of things, it's just, it's a no-brainer. You know, it's funny because it's like whenever we pour them, it's, you know, the skin fermented whites are red wines made from white grapes and the rosés are white wines made from red grapes. And we know how well white wines do out there, so why wouldn't we be celebrating that? Plus, the East End of Long Island is this amazing old agricultural place, as old as agriculture gets in this country. We have friends whose families have been farming there for 400 years. And then you have this weird Riviera-like wealth, beach, crazy, saint like you know, lifestyle and people and houses. And then you also have the urban extension of just Metro New York that's different than that, that's, you know, hipsters and educated people and people coming out for the weekend and wanting to experience local food and wine and other. So you have this crazy mix. It was, it's, you know, not so different than Provence and, and why, again, aren't we doing this? And so we'd always made rosé and, and people out there have made rosé. Look, Wolfer has had a huge, and their, their program has grown even way more than ours has over the last decade. But we were always making a rosé. When I first got there, there was a rosé in those four or five wines called Fleur de la Terre. It's a blend of a couple of red grapes. And then when I got there, we made rosé every way. We, you know, harvested grapes for rosé, let them sit for a certain amount of time, did saigné, did, you know, tried a ver- various things. 2005 came along and was a great vintage. It was a, one of these which we used to not have on the East End, but one of these warm, dry Mediterranean vintages, which we've now had in 05, 07, 10, 12, 13. So they're not such an anomaly anymore. The climate change is definitely upon us out there. But, you know, 05 came, this beautiful vintage. Most of the whites are in, but the reds are still hanging. I think it was October 7th. I think it was October 7th. And people are still pushing. And, you know, we knew some unsettled weather was coming, but oh, it wasn't. October 7th came, it rained for 10 days, I think. I think we got over 17 inches of rain in those 10 days. 
And, you know, it was just a nightmare. It was like, oh, God, what are we going to do? We go, you know, we go out there at the end, and there's some things that are just split. They're bleeding. It was just, uh So we'll, that's when Trey Rosati, which is now Molte Rosati, was born. It was like, great. Let's take the Cab Franc. Let's take the Cab Sauve. Let's take the Merlot. We're treating them like white wines. They're going whole cluster in the press. We're getting them off their skins as quickly as possible, and we're going to make rosé this way. And the rosés were gorgeous. It was like they were just crystalline and pure and transparent and reflected, you know, the place really, really well and were delicious. And I was like, well, why don't we make rosés like this all the time? And hence we have since 05. And so it started with three rosés, Merlot, Cap Franc, Cap Sauvignon. And now it's grown to six to eight rosés, Molte Rosati. So we make those three plus either Franconia, which is Blau Frankish, uh, Rafosco, sometimes Lagrine, sometimes Petit Verdot, Sculpture Garden, which is a field blend, red, Merlot, Terraldigo, Blau Frankish. I think I think that's I think that's it. And then three years ago, the Balaz folks approached us to do their Sunset Beach Rosé, which then goes to the standards all over the country and in London and down in LA. And so that was Wolford done that for a while, and that was fantastic. And I think that was great. And then they came to us, and so we've been doing that as well. So if you add that, then there's an eighth or ninth depending. But so yeah, Rosé is huge for us. How much of it is a commercial venture and how much of it is an ideas-driven venture? I mean, how No, much is first like- and foremost, it's, well, look, you know, what's interesting about Channing Daughters and, and about is that all these things are bottom-up. So they have to become commercial ventures because we're a winery, we're a business. We have employees and people, lives, kids, mortgages, school. I mean, like, you can't fuck around. You got to yeah. pay the bills. Yeah. And, yeah. and and we can ex- we can have fun and make you know, all the wines we want and, and create these amazing, you know, products and delicious experiences, but we damn well be able to sell them at the end of the day too. Otherwise we're not going to be there next year, you know? So, but it is interesting because they never start out that way. It's never like, okay, well, what are we going to do? Oh, what what are we going to do with all those red grapes? How could we sell them? Oh, let's make more. It was more like, what are we going to do with all those red grapes? What could we make that's delicious that we want to drink? That's going to like, what's the best thing we can do with this? This is what we can do. Okay. Now we got it. This is what it looks like. This is what, what, what what are we going to call it? What, what's its name? What are we going to do? How are we going to sell this? But so those problems become later. And then luckily we're good enough at figuring out how we can commercialize are creations once they've been made, but no, they're totally bottom up. Nothing's ever happened there really top down, which is another reason why we can spin on a dime in a harvest, in a situation, because nobody's sitting there going, you got to do this again, and this needs to fit into this box, and we need to put this hole and this and this peg here. It's like, okay, what are you guys going to do to take advantage and get the best out of what we've grown, out of what we've grown ourselves, out of what our growing partners have grown and brought to us to make something again that's delicious, that people are going to drink and finish and want to order more of that's reflecting this place. So that yeah, they, it happens very creatively. And what is the market for New York State wine? I mean, who buys it and, and what quantity? Where does it go? It's a great question. And I would love to hear lots of responses to, you know, to that because it's probably so different for so many producers of different types from different regions. Look, you know, the wine business is not an easy business. It's as tough as it gets. And the New York market is maybe the toughest in the entire world. I mean, we could argue about a couple other places, but there's very few places where people have the amount of choices that they have as they do in in New York. So it's not even about, you know, for me, it's just we have to make sure that what we put in the bottle is world-class because it really doesn't even matter. New York almost comes into the conversation 
after people realize that there's something that's delicious, that's high quality, that they're going to be able to serve to their customers or sell to their customers, and the people are going to be happy and, and want some more. Because, you know, on, on one end, we enjoy great success in New York, and we can find Channing Daughters wines all over the city and, you know, from Brooklyn to Queens to Manhattan and one-star places and two-star places and three-star places and four-star places. But it's not easy. You know, we have to pound the pavement and work really hard to get those placements and to maintain them. And things change all the time. And yeah, our wines are in eight, you know, six to eight other states. And we're also, you know, in a few international markets. So you can find our wines in Denmark and in the UK and in Quebec and in Australia. Australia has been huge for us. Probably our biggest export. I mean, like, the wines are hot in Sydney. And I mean, we have a great people, Brooks and Amos, that are into the wines and push them and are connected. But there's no bias down there, too. There's no, oh, New York wine. It's not, it doesn't, that doesn't exist like it does in, in the States. Or it's like, this is delicious wine from this cool place, from somewhere cool in the world, just like it is when a wine from Italy or France comes to us in New York. People are like, they don't go, uh... Est, 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 or, right, right, know, or something right. like the, the people don't know where, where it is. I mean, granted, there's not that many great wines coming from there, but I'm sure there's a couple of killer ones, you know. So that's, it's both really successful and still a huge challenge, I think, for New York wines. But I think if you put the quality in the bottle and you work the pavement, you put the, you know, the feet on the ground and you have those relationships and you're honest and you make delicious stuff, then you will find, you will find success. You've mentioned the affinity for white wines from the region, but it also seems to me like you're doing quite well with red. I mean, what's the secret there? Well, we do, and the red wines from Long Island are awesome and way under way undersung, but it's a much a narrower range. So you, I can't, I, I don't talk about red wines in the same way that I do about that spectrum of whites because we don't have the possibility for that entire spectrum because of our climate. We make red wines. We're not going to make black wines. We're not a warm, dry district where we're going to have low acid, high alcohol wines. And there's certain varieties that just won't ever grow because of the water that we have. But the red wines are fantastic. And I think in general, for Long Island and certainly for us, drunk much too young. And I've found now with more and more wines you know, that I've made with eight, ten years of bottle age on how much more they shine as those wines start to develop in the bottle. And one of the things that we at Channing Daughters definitely have done that's a little bit different is not just gone down the Bordeaux path, which is, you know, great and been wonderful for Long Island. And 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 there's so many great reasons for it. And Merlot and Cab Franc do exceedingly well there. And Cabernet Sauvignon in particular, very specific sites and particular vintages can also be quite successful. Petit Verdot can be amazingly successful there. Actually, I'm sort of stunned by its potential. But we've also looked at, well, we like those wines and those varieties and those styles. We wanted a little bit more colors on our palette, a few more a bit more vocabulary, a few more options of raw materials. So we have things like Dornfelder, Blaufrankisch, Lagrine, Rafosco, Teraldigo that we use as well, both on their own and as blenders. Because I think it helps us tell a more unique story of our particular place. So what have been vintages or particular wines that you've found 
you've been very proud of? What have been the successes in the 10-year career so far? Honestly, I'm proud of everything we do every year. I mean, look, do some things work better than others? And do you, you know, do some wines you think are going to be really great and then sort of, you know, peter off and think, yeah, that happens. But still, I'm I'm jazzed and excited about everything we do and everything you know, we, we, we put out there. Have there been surprises where you're like, oh, I didn't think that one was going to come around that good. That's pretty surprisingly awesome. Yeah, but I don't know if I, w- I, could, I could sit here and talk about them specifically. I mean, I th- that sort of stuff almost happens on a, da- you know, on a daily basis, just working. Oh, God, this happened. Oh, God, this happened. You know, so it's, it's a constant. I mean, that's the thing about life and the wine business anyways. And if you do live sort of try and in the moment and it is wonderfully hard the, and wine and, and growing wine in a region like we grow it is particularly that as well what are the things that have gotten you through i mean what are the things you, you've learned over the years that you think boy that's been an important lesson for me to keep getting better at this job of uh, resilience yeah i mean i think it's sort of the you know the things i mean i have three kids now you know a seven-year-old boy and twin three-year-old girls i mean the things we teach our kids you know honesty resilience and respect and i think those those and how you could translate that from a human being to grapes how you farm how you make wine how you talk to people about how you make wine i mean the whole sustain i don't talk enough you know i go i sell i go out and actually you know you know i go out and actually do the most of the wholesale sales too and i'm remiss so often because i don't talk about press which is a useful tool when you're selling wine some i mean sometimes it's not it can but it's it's more often than not, at least it's worth some often mentioning. But it seems I just don't think about it because it's not why we're making the wine anyways. It's right. and and the other is is the sustainability program. You're not that's in been, it for the podcast. No, it's <laughs> not, I mean they're great. We love them. They're you know, and we really like the people. And but no, that's not. And then the sustainability thing too, which I should talk more about because it's so. I mean that's one of the thing we're interested in the cradle to grave story of. Everything we use, how it impacts us, our kids, our soil, our air, our water, why we're using it, and you know, come to terms with that because it's you know we're all, we're all part of the collateral damage of the modern world, and and so I think we just really have to be honest about what we're doing, the choices we're making, and how those choices affect things, and and so you know to that end. That Long Island Sustainable Wine Growing Project was launched, I think the first year of official third-party certified wines was 2012. But that was built on the back of the Vine Balance Program that Alice Wise and Libby Tarleton had done at the Cornell Cooperative Research Extension that, you know, Larry had been involved with and is still on the board. And those guys are close, you know, I mean, I get grapes from them still and make research cab and, you know, do all sorts of cool things. Um, But so then Barbara Shin, Larry Perrine of Channing Daughters, Barbara Shin of Shin, Jim Thompson of Martha Clara and Rich Olson Harbick of Bedell now got together to launch the Long Island Sustainable Wine Growing Program. Growers, self-assessed workbooks. Alan Connell, the third-party certifier. They had Cliff Omar, part of Sure Harvest, and you know, responsible for the Lodi sample program, come out and almost be a fourth-party evaluator of the system. And so that's something that's you know, there's not even any that's the, that's the only certified sustainable agricultural program I think even east of the Mississippi or even further, you know, west, because you have to go out to California and Oregon really to get some. And that stuff is hugely, hugely important to us. And and I think will prove, too, not only to be important to agriculture, wine grape growing, but agriculture in general in New York State, too. So it's been a really exciting, exciting program. A little bit ago, you started up a vermouth project. What were the origins of that, and how's it come about? 
it's been really fantastically fun and inspiring. And um, the only hassle with it is I've created production for myself off season, which is really actually, I mean, it's a lot of work and it starts in like May. And now I'm like making vermouth in May and June and July and August. And so it's, it's kind of crazy, but it, the Genesis started probably about a dec more than about a decade ago when we first started making the skin fermented whites because it was the same story. Whenever we go back in history and we're looking at how wine was made, what the production techniques were, whenever we find some archaeological dig and people dig up terracotta and find tartaric acid pointing towards wine production, there's inevitably other stuff, basil, rosemary, wormwood, this, that, the other thing for medicinal, preservative, flavor, aroma, all, all sorts of things. It was like, well, why aren't we doing this? And I didn't have, you know, haven't had the time, haven't had the space, had kids. A few years ago, somebody came out, was looking for some people I knew from the MW program and were asking questions and wanting some. And I finally looked at them and were like, you're going to make vermouth, aren't you? You want bulk wine? And they were like, yeah, but you can't. I was like, don't. I said, I've been thinking about that for years, but I'm just not, it's not going to happen. And then another four or five years went by. And so, you know, I just continued to research, look back and look at recipes for Hippocratic wine, you know, read about Carpano and see what they were doing, buy botanist books and, you know, and we grow a lot of herbs and flowers and I have, you know, black birch on my property and we have farmers that grow all these crazy things. And so it was like, well, why, again, why aren't we doing this? This is yet another way to tell the story of our terroir, our place, not only through the wine that we make, but through all these other things that we either grow or forage or like, how cool is that? And how cool too, to be able to work with our friends like Marilee Foster from, you know, his family's been there for 300 years in Sagaponic or Dave Falkowski, who's growing mushrooms around the corner and, you know, has a big farmer or Mary Waltz, who's taking care of bees, whose hives are servicing all these botanicals on these various farms to work with them, to have them be able to taste their harvest months, years, out. So that's, and so it was, we looked back and as you can imagine, and probably know vermouth or aromatized wines, and then eventually aromatized and fortified wines have been made in every way, shape and form you can imagine, you know, pretty much any way you could think about making it, somebody's made it that way. So we sort of tinkered around, came up with recipes, tried to figure out what we wanted to do and then said, well, let's do, why, why? And I had a good friend too, that sort of really posed the local not the seasonal, but it was like, because it was like, okay, where am I going to source this? How, what kind of recipe and we're tinkering? Oh, we're going to get, well, why do we even want to do that? Maybe we should go back to even like when it was Hippocratic wine, when these aromatized wines were truly local seasonal expressions before we had the spice route, before what it was, you know, in the end of the 1700s, when we can get stuff from Jamaica and stuff from China and stuff from India, as well as stuff from Italy or France. It was like, great, let's do that. Let's make seasonal ones. Let's make them so there's spring early summer, late summer, fall, and celebrate the different because we eat that way. It's like what we're eating in the spring is so green and herbal and oniony. And, you know, that should be what that profile is. And and so we tinkered and again came up with recipes. And that was one of the most difficult things about the whole project was actually coming up with the formulations because the actual legal hoops to jump through to get these things is a totally different thing than wine. I mean, you have to have, you know, Latin botanical names down to, you know, weights and measures by the gram. Some things are allowed, some things aren't. Some things can need, would need to be tested if you use them. Some things don't. So that was a huge education and coming up with how we could, for, you know, formulate these recipes for the vermouth. Um, did that, came up with them, got them approved, and then 
launched commercial production of them for the first time in 2013, so last year. So we did five, variation one, variation two, variation three, variation four, variation five, batch one, batch ones. Um, variation one, spring botanicals, white, variation two and three, a white and a pink or a white, pink, pink, red, uh, were early summer botanicals. Four and five were late summer botanicals. And then this year, for the first time, because I just couldn't pull it off last year, and because it was during harvest, we did a red based on red wine, almost like a Quinato fall version based on fall botanicals. So things like apples and pears and squash and pumpkins and all the last of the flowers and that sort of thing. So it's been a really exciting project. They're delicious to drink by themselves. They're very different than the European vermouths. They're much more aromatic, much much more pronounced personalities, much drier, even though they still have residual sugar from the honey, which we add to it, but they're much, much drier um, on the scale of things. So I think make better mixers in some senses because there's so much sugar at, at the bar already. So it's been really thrilling. And we made them again because we just wanted to make them because it was like, this is cool and they're delicious. I had no idea that vermouth would be as hot or is as hot as it has been in the last year since we even launched it, how many new producers there are, how it's taken off, how many articles there are going to be. I had no idea that people would embrace it by itself as well as a mixer. So it's been, yeah, it's been, I mean, we did, so then this year we, you know, in 2014, we did batch twos of them and we almost had double production, which is great. So yeah, now there's like another thousand plus cases of vermouth. Uh, Vervino is what we call it, Vervino vermouth. So our sort of play there was a play on, vermouth and you know there also means to see and vena so to see it was all that sort of play on and in fact if we could have i would have loved to have left vermouth off and just called it vervino but that's how people understand it that's how it can be approved from a regulatory label cola perspective and so there's whatever it's all fine it works it's been a lot of changes over 10 years how do you see the next decade shaping up what's going to happen i think much will be preserved and much will change. I mean, that's one of the great things we, is we do. We want to change. We want to keep continuing to evolve and make the same old things in new ways, make new things in old ways, and and everything in between that. So I think you'll see many of the same things continue to grow. Maybe some new things come out. Maybe some old things take sabbaticals or go away. I mean, this year, before we even got started, I told you we have a couple of new new projects that we did in 2014 that I'm really excited about that we've also been talking about for years. So it's I think there's always something new and interesting happening at Channing Daughters, which I think is really, I mean, that's what, how we live. So why not share? Christopher Tracy, he's thinking before the spice route and he's making wine in Long Island for Channing Daughters. Thank you very much for being here. Thanks for having me. Christopher Tracy of Channing Daughters. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website all drink to that pod.com. That's I L L drink to that pod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.